You're listening to Around Comics, episode 154. listening to another Monday edition of Around Comics, the comic culture podcast. As you may already know, Around Comics is a proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. The network is a collection of friends and fellow podcasters that share a common love of comics and like to help promote each other's shows. Regular Monday contributors Chris Marshall of the Collected Comics Library and John Mayo of the Comic Book Page Podcast are also members. You can find more about the network and sample various shows at comicspodcast.com. And this holiday season, the network is asking all of our listeners to donate to the Hero Initiative. It's easy enough to do, and every dollar helps. Donating even the cost of one comic book can make a huge difference in the life of a veteran creator in need. All you have to do is go to aroundcomics.com and click the Donate button to make a PayPal payment for any amount. For other forms of payment, you can go to heroinitiative.org. When you make a donation and let us know about it, we'll make sure to mention you on the show, just like Brian Geisler and Kyle Shore. Thank you guys for already donating. To do our part, Around Comics is presenting our Month of Heroes. Every Monday from now through the end of the year, you'll hear a feature interview with Hero Initiative board members and creators that volunteer their time to help benefit Hero. Today we're kicking off the month with a conversation between two creators that are both passionate about Hero, Tim Seeley and Brian Polito. We'll also get you ready for the week ahead with new trade paperback and single issue releases. Sal goes over the week's headlines in Wired Wire comic book news. Tom is back as the answer man. Jeremy Mullins and Will Pfeiffer give their webcomic and DVD suggestions. All that and more is next on Around Comics. Because of the Thanksgiving Day holiday, we didn't record our regular Thursday episode at Dark Tower this week and are taking a week off, so this will be the only episode of Around Comics that comes out this week. We usually tell you about the club on our Thursday episodes. It's our chance every month for one of the panel members to pick a CD, a DVD, and a trade paperback to share, and then at the end of the month get our thoughts as a panel on it, and we encourage people to play along at home. This month was my pick, and the music selection was the Southern Rock Opera by the Drive-By Truckers. The movie selection was The Devil's Backbone, directed by Guillermo del Toro. And the trade paperback selection is Point Blank. And now is a great time to mention that this episode of Around Comics is sponsored by InStockTrades.com, where you can find this month's reading selection, Point Blank, for an amazing 35% off the cover price. 
Get your copy today for only $9.72. You can now read Ed Brubaker's amazing five-issue prologue to the critically acclaimed Sleeper for less than $10. InStockTrades.com offers a huge selection of the collected editions you need. InStockTrades is your source for trade paperbacks, deluxe hardcovers, essentials, showcases, archives, absolute editions, omnibus editions, and more all at great discounted prices. And remember that all orders over $50 ship for free. Brian Polito has made his mark creating such horror icons as Evil Ernie and Lady Death and reimagining characters for Marvel Comics and New Line Cinema's A Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, and A Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Tim Seeley is the creator of the comic and soon-to-be major motion picture Hackslash and the irreverent Loaded Bible Jesus vs. Vampire series from Image Comics. Around Comics is happy to present both creators as we kick off our Month of Heroes. I'm Tim Seeley. I'm uh, doing a little fill-in interview with the Amazing Hero Initiative's Brian Polito, also the author of uh, the entire Chaos line of comics and a number of books from CrossGen, Avatar, uh, Marvel, and hosts of others. So, uh, and also a filmmaker. So, Brian, you got you got a lot of uh, slashes in your uh, in your credits there. Filmmaker, yes, comic writer. So, okay. So, I was gonna. I was. I've never actually got to like interview and tell you all about this stuff before, but um, I wanted to start it out. When I was, you know, I think, God, I must have been about 13, uh, my comic book store wouldn't sell me this new comic that was coming out, black and white. It's called Evil Ernie. They wouldn't sell it to me. So so I found this mail order thing where they would se- they would basically sell me Black Kiss if I wanted to. and uh, so, But I would order I would order uh, Evil Ernie and stuff and get it delivered to my house, and then it came, you know, my brothers and I would all look at it. Was your intent when you started Evil Ernie to be like this, you know, sort of underground comic, something that was, uh, you know, something that kids had to hide under their beds? Absolutely, man. I remember I personally grew up reading stuff like heavy metal when I wasn't supposed to. And uh, the Warren stuff, creepy, eerie. And I gravitated, I, I read superhero comics and stuff, but I gravitated towards the Marvel monster stuff, particularly things like uh, Where Monsters Dwell, Monsters on the Prowl. And when I was contemplating starting to make comics, there was a couple companies that were really inspiring me. Rebel Studios, you know, Tim Vigil, David Quinn, North Star. So those are the sort of companies. I looked at them and I saw, wow, these guys make crazy rock and roll comics. I don't see anything like that in the marketplace. So, I mean, part of it was just an expression, you know, a rock and roll vision of comics. And, you know, whether it was underground, above ground, side ground, wasn't as important as it was just to get out there and express it because I just didn't see that out there. That's, I mean, as a kid going into the store, uh, I mean, that's something that you definitely noticed because there wasn't anything like that. And, uh, I mean, so, I mean, I have you to thank. That's what got me into the sort of, wanted to do the indie horror stuff, and from, you know, picking up Evil Ernie, uh, the original stuff, um, that's what got me into, like, you know, eventually picking up all that other stuff that I was ordering from this uh, guy who would send me Black Kiss and, uh, and you know, uh, any Faust and all that crazy stuff. So there you go. You're like a gateway yeah. drug. 
So thanks, man. <laughs> so after you do the uh, uh, all this chaos stuff, now you were talking about the Marvel stuff, the Marvel horror stuff. Uh, you got to do the supernatural stuff at Marvel. Uh, yeah, that was crazy, man. That was like the great rock and roll swindle. The publisher at the time called me up and basically backed up a truck full of money and said, "Do whatever you want, honestly." And uh, I picked. I thought it was, the, you know, just a great cosmic joke that I picked the most obscure, second-rate, ridiculous characters and threw them together. Now, truthfully, I really adore those characters, so it seems like the logical thing to do is to bring, like, Spider-Man and Wolverine together, but I just thought Brother Voodoo and Satana and Ghost Rider were really cool. So we put the story together where we had all those monsters facing off against every other monster you could possibly imagine. And I think by the fourth issue, we were bringing in all those crazy giant monsters from the timely era. We had crazy characters like Bloodstone, and that was just a blast to do. So it was... A lot of levels. And then um, the kind of the thing that you got to do was sort of make it as your own universe as well, right? I mean, you got to kind of create it... It was sort of a separate thing from the Marvel Universe. You got to kind of... It was, almost, it was almost sort of like an ultimate thing, pre-ultimates. Like, you got to do new histories for the characters, and your gargoyle was a little different, and, and Johnny Blaze exactly. was like a teenager. Like, you kind of got to do a reboot version of it. Exactly. They said, do what you want, and as long as it passed by, I, st- I think it still had to be code-approved, which we agreed to, and at the time, for us, that was you know, that was something really different, because we right. never had to worry about the code, so we took it as a challenge. Like, okay, we can do a code comic. But, uh, yeah, it was neat, because it got to reinterpret all those characters and tweak them out, and I think I revisioned Brother Voodoo, more or less, as, like, at the time, like, you know, Sean Puffy Combs as uh, right, right. Brother Voodoo. And, yeah, yeah, and it was just a lot of fun. It was, uh, yeah, I guess that you could say is like it was the first Ultimate Universe. I guess who knows? Man, you should. I would love to see you guys be able to return to that sort of stuff because you know, I mean, that to me at the time was the coolest version of of those horror characters that I'd seen. You know, and there's not a lot oh, of I, like the the horror superhero stuff isn't quite done that way. I mean, I love the sort of seventies, the edgy seventies sort of you know versions of the characters where the good guys are kind of like Satan is your good guy and she sucks people's souls out and you know. Like, there was that edge of the dangerous horror characters in there. It's, a, it's an art form because, you know, all those characters are what I call gray matter characters because heroes are clearly good, mm-hmm. villains are clearly bad, but then you have these morally ambiguous characters like the Punisher, Wolverine, and all these supernatural characters when they're played right. They're all kind of in between. And I guess through the chaos years, I had some experience with that because it's, it's extraordinarily difficult to have audience members identify with the bad guy the whole right. time, but for some reason I'm able to do it. I don't exactly know why, truthfully, but, you know, I kind of, I, I really enjoy the bad guys. I like their points of view. They get to have a lot more fun than the good guys, obviously. Right, right. And you notice, I mean, I don't know if you noticed it too, but, like, on TV lately, like, I don't know if maybe, you know, pop culture in general, comics you get to be a little bit ahead of the game, but, like, you've got your Sawyers from Lost, and you've got... There's a lot of the more morally ambiguous characters um, on TV, and like even the whole Battlestar Galactica basically is a morality, ambi- morality, you know, morally ambiguous show, really. So like you see that sort of like maybe you know you were on the cutting edge, man. What can you say? I guess so. I think you know. I think part of the reason you see that too is I just think that we as a civilization are really struggling. You know, mm-hmm. so it's it's really tough because you know I don't know. You look at a lot of people who portray themselves as 
good, you know, let's say some right-wing religious extremists, and I don't know, the way I see them, they're pretty bad. They're not accepting. So it's right. like all the roles are reversing. I remember many years ago, the good guy would ride into town and wear white, but then when something like the Matrix came around, all the good guys wore black, and that right, makes right. perfect sense to me. It's like good guys wear black, yeah. Totally. So it's, yeah, it's an upside-down kind of world. That's interesting, because yeah, it's, it's easy to, like, forget how much, you know, the state of the world and politics affects what people find to be good entertainment and stuff. I mean, you know, a, a show like Heroes or something, which might not have been popular, but now when people, like, have nothing to look up to because your leadership is crap, you know, like, there's definitely something to do with, you know, the politics affecting stuff. Yeah, it's interesting, too. Like, you bring up something like uh, Lost, I think it kind of... I don't know if you remember, many years ago in the 60s, there was a show called The Prisoner, and it seemed like oh, right. a sort of worked version of it. And, I, yeah, I love that show in particular. That show, I only know, is, I mean, I was a pretty little kid when it came out, and it just creeped the hell out of me. And it was English, too, so English shows uh, automatically yeah. had that weird, like, creepy something foreign about this going on. <laughs> yeah, and that, yeah, and that man from Uncle Dude was extra creepy. He looked like yeah. a living version of one of those Thunderbird marionettes. <laughs> <laughs> that is not a compliment for anyone. And then, like, when no. he went down a slide, he kind of flopped around just like the Thunderbirds, you know? <laughs> exactly. So then, uh, so when you went uh, after the cast stuff, and then you ended up doing uh, the cross-gen version of, of Lady Death, which was the the medieval Lady Death, what uh, what happened there that you wanted to kind of re-envision the character and kind of change the way you were doing it? What, you know, what kind of prompted that? Well, you know, I mean, if, if I go back to the time, in August of 2 Chaos Comics folded, and my mind was completely warped at the time. I, I mean, I was mentally exhausted. I was really fucked up in the head. And I was ready. I was actually putting my skulls down. I was, you know, I said at that moment in time, I was like, okay, that's it. It's time for me to just do something completely different. And hence came this reinterpretation of the Lady Death character, where she was quote-unquote PG-13. And I actually still adore that particular vision of the character, and, but maybe that character just needed to be a different character. Maybe that character didn't have to be called Lady Death, but by the same token, I had a blast because the bad guys that we made up for that were called uh, the Eldritch, and they were by design capricious in nature. They were very powerful wizards, but they would change their mind. You know, they'd be on your side, they would not be on your side. So they were very capricious, and I hadn't seen a lot of that, except maybe in uh, Michael Moorcock's Elric, which I, you know, I definitely think I took some cues from there. So, it, you know, again, it was kind of an experiment. And like, relative to the time, certain things are very punk rock to me. So the idea of actually me doing something mainstream was kind of punk rock at the time. So, right, right. Um, so, you know, it's all kind of relative. So uh, I think it came out of the desire to do the wholesome version was the desire to kind of just break my personal narrative, you know, that I had been... Uh, you know, the Master of Darkness kind of guy. And that didn't last all that long, you know, because I just kind of naturally went back and, you know, just got dark. But uh, I really still enjoy that character and that interpretation of the character. I think it, uh, you know, I substituted the darkness with just ripping yarns and uh, a gigantic cast. And, you know, the character still had tons of action and stuff, but it wasn't, the you know, the harsh, cruel bitch that, classic Lady Death is. Right, right. Did you find that, did you have sort of a similar, was it the same people reading it, or was it a completely different group of people? Were there people who only, you know, checked out Bitch Lady Death, and there were people that yeah, only it, only it, read the medieval yeah, version? If you, got, if you got them in a room together, they would fight, because it was right, actually right. two distinctly, 
distinct readerships. I think what happened was, because Crustian did a lot of that PG-13 stuff, a lot of those readers glommed onto it, and then it, that version of Late Up just discovered completely new readers, and it polarized people. So a lot of the hardcore, you know, uh, tougher Lady Death character readers just stuck with the other one. It was like they folded their arms and said, hey, there's no way I'm going to give that a shot. Right, right. And after a little while, they some of the regular readers read it and like, oh, okay, cool. I mean, it's not as cool as I would like, but it's still a good story. It's kind of interesting. But, uh, yeah, a lot of those people, boy, it was different lines, let me tell you. I mean, I would, you know, go to a comic convention, I'd have, like, these wholesome people in line. And then, right, right. And then, you know, and then not, you're very different. So that was a different experience. It's kind of interesting because it, it's, it's such an experiment. And you're, you're, like the, you're like the great scientist of this is – that comic fans have such distinct tastes that they, you know, they are, I'm this kind of dude, I read this kind of book, you know, so you, you just discovered exactly how that worked by using exactly. the same character. Yeah, interesting. Um, so yeah, then, in the summer, I, the summer I did these um, animated Laura Croft things. I wrote the stories, and by design, these stories were reinterpreting Laura Croft and putting her in different milieus, and right, right. it was funny because I did one that was specifically like a send-up of a te- um, uh, Tex-, Tex Avery comedy. It was the first time Laura Croft had ever been put in a comedy, right, and right. a lot of people got the joke, but a lot of the hardcore Laura Croft people were like, you know, how could they possibly even think about putting her in a comedy? Oh, oh totally. Like, hey, dude, lighten up. She's fake. She's not even real. Right. That's, I, I enjoyed those, by the way, too, because you had sent me uh, the first one, the sort of the animation style one. I thought it was really that was a, that was a good way to do it. And actually, I mean, when you're talking about those video games, they are sort of like ridiculous. I mean, most video games, it, it, by you know, by intention, it's supposed to be kind of a crazy, over the top thing, anyway. So I thought it really worked well. That was pretty cool, man. Thanks a lot. That was fun to do. Fun project. So okay, so now we're we're uh, you went over to Avatar where you got to uh, pick up the reins on your media little Lady Death, uh, your original Lady Death also, and then you created like a whole. I mean, I'm gonna say it was basically a shitload of uh, titles over there. Uh, you had Unholy, Baldana, Gypsy, um, uh, War Angel, yeah, a whole bunch of yeah. War Angel, I did Killer, Killer Gnomes, Mischief Night, Bad Moon Rising. That was fun. I mean, the things like. Let's say things like War Angel, that definitely harkens back to the, my earlier indie days where I, that that comic was just designed to just say fuck you to everybody. It was it was like fifteen genres rolled up into one. So it was science fiction, it was horror, it was over the top, it was all kinds of stuff. And you know, I guess sometimes people in this day and age will make a comic and they're thinking, well, this could be a movie, then a video game. Well, that type of story was definitely just saying this is just supposed to be a comic this is just the weird stuff you could only find in a comic right like stories like um, nemesis the warlock martial law stuff like that that's only ever going to be a comic because it's right. just so messed up right right and that was my goal with that one it was just you know it was about a fallen angel who had renounced god she was a lesbian she was a bulldog lesbian she was hyper violent and she was in a bizarre future setting, and it was a riff on um, an old Kurosawa film. So, I mean, the whole thing was just bananas. So that was, you know, it's great that Will gave me the opportunity to do kind of strange stuff like that. And said, you know, actually, the stranger, the better. He was <laughs> he's the sort of guy, like, he's a fun publisher where he just pushes. He's like, no, 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 could you really make it more disturbing, worse, weirder, whatever? So right, right. That kind of, that uh, fits his tastes. That's because he himself is worse, weirder, and creepier than, than all of us, and that's why we love him. 
So when you were, I mean, because basically you, you weren't trying to build a universe with these titles. You were just trying, I mean, it was basically just you kind of unleashed, like doing, were you just kind of do like all the sort of books that you wanted to do or these all ideas that you were, you were harboring or? It's interesting because a lot of modern comics, they all seem to be told the same way a little bit. Now, I think this is a golden age for comics. I'm adoring a, a ton of different books, but there's, there's almost like a homogenized way where everybody makes a comic look like a movie and it's got to be a movie. You know, right, right. comic is a template for just the movie. And sometimes comics for me should just be comics for comics' sake because it just so happens that in my heart of hearts, I, I happen to adore the stranger comics out there. So for me, when I was growing up, things like Kill Raven, Deathlock, there was a great series called Warlock 5. And I have mentioned things like Martial Law and... Um, Nemesis the Warlock, and I, I just don't know how you could get better for the form where it's just crazy and bananas. Like, I'm one of these rare people who, I read Watchmen, I was moderately entertained, but I just don't get the adulation. Whereas, I read Martial Law or Warlock 5, and I'm going, that's what comics are supposed to be about. So that's just my particular head. So um, when Will offered me the opportunity just to go bananas and write those stories, I did. That's really cool. I, I, I totally appreciate that because it, it can be, especially when you work in indie comics, it, you, after a while you're just sort of like, you see that most things that people put out are sort of just pitches for a movie. And, and you yep. know when you're dealing with Hollywood, it's like, well, keep it grounded, keep it, you know, keep it castable with like a hot new a young actress. And you just wish that you'd yep. see more just really fucked up weird stuff and just people having a good time. Yeah, right? I mean, the form is just, form is so unique in that we don't have a budget per se, you know, except obviously, you know, the real budget of manufacturing it and paying people, but you can tell really outlandish stories, things that don't follow the rules, that break the rules, that um, stack a bunch of different genres up on top of each other. You know, that that's real attractive to me about comics, just a chance to be kind of weird. Absolutely. I, I didn't notice, because I, when I did, a, I did a comic called Loaded Bible, which was just like a Jesus fighting vampires, the whole intent was... Yeah. There was no way anyone in Hollywood will like this. Like, it was basically just, like, taking the pressure off myself. I know no one yeah. will want to buy this, so I can do whatever I want. Yeah, <laughs> that's no, that's totally cool. That's, that's totally cool. So, okay, so then I know, like, uh, I actually, I saw your, uh, your film, uh, uh, There's Something Out There. Uh, yes. So, what was, I mean, basically I know you kind of started out doing movie stuff before you did comics, right? I mean, you were basically, like, working on a production side of that stuff, weren't you? I was, yeah. I graduated from NYU Film a long time ago, and I went to work right away on the streets of New York City as a production assistant. Because you know, sometimes, back then, if you got a film degree, that qualified you to get coffee for people for about a year, so that's what I did. But I worked in film production and eventually worked my way up to first assistant director on commercials and music videos. And I was doing that in New York and Los Angeles when the chaos thing took off. And I went for the chaos ride in particular because there was just so much more uh, creative freedom. Whereas what I was doing previously was, it was managerial, really. Right. And, uh, I was good at it and all, but it was just managerial. Then around 2002, when chaos folded, I just went back to it. And I actually enrolled in a college, more or less. And I just went through uh, um, the, our, our local college's film track and just got hip to what was going on with digital filmmaking. Right. I have actually a funny aside story on that. Like, I went to the, there was a class, it was called TCM 100, and that's the class you just have to take no matter what, and it's to learn a really primitive editing program called uh, uh, iMovie. So I'm in, there in, in, I'm in there with a bunch of, like, 19-year-olds learning it, 
me, and they go around and they're asking everybody, well, who are you? What do you do? And they get around to me and I say, yeah, I'm Brian Pluto, uh, write comics, uh, wrote this character, this one, that, and the other. This girl in front of me goes, oh my God, you're Brian Polito. And she lifts her shirt up and she's got a giant lady death back piece. <laughs> nice. That was a total hoot because uh, <laughs> I kind of characterized that experience. It was a real fun time. So I, I think I went through two years worth of classes in, in about a year and a half. And in that time, I made that particular film you're referring to. There's something out there. And I put that on the film festival circuit, played around 40 plus festivals, maybe 45 at this point, I don't know, and uh, won several awards, and I learned a lot. You know, I learned, uh, we shot it in film, I got my skills back up, and since then, have been making music videos and commercials out here, um, and uh, probably the most exciting stuff right now is I'm neck deep into raising finance on my first feature, and I think we just hit the tipping point where we'll be able to go into uh, production on the film probably right in the beginning of the new year so really it's really exciting so is there the yeah, film gone sure. that you're making right gone is it called or um with the, the, uh, that, well, you know, it's interesting i actually have had to write four screenplays to, to write one cheap enough and, and gone ah. is actually a screenplay that wound up uh being in development in hollywood which is you know kind of a double-edged sword it's oh, yeah. because it gets attention it's not so nice because it's in development so that one currently is stuck in development, and obviously the strike, not much is happening. Right, right. And um, I actually wound up writing two more screenplays to finally get to the current one we're doing, because again, the reason is to try to make it as inexpensive as possible. So we finally wrote something that cost to write around 900000 bucks, and we will begin prepping it in the new year. Awesome, and man. It's, it's horror. It's horror. So it's, it's awesome. I'm totally it's shocked. Awesome. I'm totally shocked. That is a horror movie. I, I wouldn't have thought that from you. <laughs> about like you know a chick flick but uh, it's absolutely hard i, I, mean, I would pay to see a brian polito chick flick actually i'd love to see that's, uh, possible. <laughs> that's possible too that way <laughs> but it's like a bad chick flick the girls are very bad girls <laughs> just called spanking that's 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 your chick flick right exactly there you go i don't so, think spank monsters so when you're doing that kind of stuff are you still going to have time to do your comic stuff or you're kind of going to full just have to throw it in and be a be a movie boy for a little while Right now, I actually am movie boy for a while because there's, you know, right before the strike, there, I had things cooking uh, in TV and movies and, you know, writing horror stuff for hire. And now, at the moment, I'm actually just putting a lot of time into preparation for this particular film, even before it kind of some of the formative stuff of the storyboards and all that stuff, getting that done before it actually goes into production. But I love comics. I'm sure I'll do more comics. And uh, speaking of comics, actually... I actually launched a new venture called Coffin Comics. Really? And yeah, it's. I mean, literally, we we actually <laughs> we actually had a séance over it on October thirty first on Halloween, and we gave it birth. Coffin Comics, and it's uh, focused on specifically dark fine arts. And initially, what I will be doing is. Um, Art-related material to Lady Death, not the story stuff that William does, but uh, art-related material that is going to be in very, very short runs by design. Now, one thing that I adored that I did in the early days of Chaos Comics was you know, really handcrafting, really art-directing, working with great artists and putting together neat, freaky covers, things like the uh, leather.
leather cover, velvet cover, and I actually have never lost my attraction for doing that. So I've actually figured out ways of making incredibly short print-run books with lovely covers and virtually handcrafted lovely stuff. And I've just begun the process of inviting some people on board to do this along with me. So, I mean, some people that you will you'll definitely know, you know, to come in and do art. And I'm also particularly through Coffin Comics interested in reinterpreting Lady Death for this moment. Uh, and what I mean by that is the character's always had a degree of flexibility. So we've done things like uh, Pirate Queen Lady Death, this, that, and the other. And I have a project called Lady Death Visions, and it's a matter of inviting a lot of different artists from a lot of different subcultural backgrounds to reinterpret the character for their subculture. So things like... Um, you know, the people who are into the rockabilly, the people who are into the roller derby, people who are into, like, uh, cyber goth, like, all these weird, neat, cool subcultures. I'm, I'm looking to move her into that. And then we have other real interesting business extensions with Lady Death. For example, for whatever reason, the tattoo community really adores Lady Death. So there's, above and beyond fans of the character who know her from the comics, there's just Literally thousands of people have Lady Death tattoos. So in 08, we're doing a whole series of Tattoo Flash, which is world premiering at a particular show out here in Phoenix. So, uh, you know, in the area of, like, print and comics and that kind of stuff, you know, I'm still cooking along, and I actually feel like I'm getting back to a first love because the, the idea of really handcrafting it is real exciting to me. That sounds great, man. I, I, you know, this is, a, like, world premiere because I hadn't heard anything about it, so that's awesome. I have, I, by design, have not really announced it yet. We probably won't announce it for what? I'm looking at the schedule not for a couple, three, four more weeks. But, yeah, we gave it birth on, it was brewing, but uh, we gave it birth on Halloween. Nice. And website will be up in about two weeks and all that kind of silliness. And some of our products begin to be offered through Diamond. I guess our first official coffin product through Diamond is in March. Great, man. I'll, so, I'll definitely check that out. Cool, man. So, okay. Now, how did you get involved with the Here Initiative? Because I know I've, I've done a fair amount of stuff uh, with them, and I was always curious as to how it's like Jim McLaughlin and then then you. And it seems like an interesting combination of, of guys who are uh, working for this great charity thing. So how did you get started with the Here Initiative? You know, I'd always been fairly charitable. I worked with CBLDF. I think I was a Defender of Liberty in 97, and I built teams of people who had raised a lot of money uh, my wife, other people who were involved in chaos, friends and stuff, and um, I think that's a completely valid cause. I got particularly excited. I knew Mark Alessi, the uh, owner of CrossGen, and, all, and I've always known Jim. And it's very interesting. For whatever reason, Jim and I met maybe in 96, and we just hit it off. And on the surface, you'd go, well, how's that, how are those two guys really hit it off? And one of the strange, peculiar secrets about me is I'm very, like, I'd make a very good office manager because I really am into that kind of weird detail, and so is Jim. <laughs> so what we noticed whenever, like, if he asked me to do something or I asked him to do something, we just did it. You know, there wasn't a lot of follow-up. You didn't really have to, we didn't drag our heels. It just got done. So early on, I think Jim had the idea of doing the Hero Initiative, formerly known as Actor, and Mark Alessi bankrolled it. And when those guys founded it, they called in a couple of people who they thought would be assets to it, and I was among the first group of people. And uh, to me, it's very, very simple. I mean, uh, your Hero Initiative is about 
raising funds for comic veterans in need. And, and why that speaks to me is, first of all, long ago I learned one of the secrets of life life success is the more you give, the more you get. And not that I'm doing it for any selfish reason, but there's a, I don't mean to sound touchy-feely here, but there's just a great deal of satisfaction in knowing that you're helping people, and particularly in this uh, arena. Now, I love comics, so above and beyond my own participation in comics, I've collected comics since I could read, or it helped me read, actually. I had I was left back in first grade, and I had a hard time reading, and comics really helped me. But anyway, this just seemed to be like the, the right thing to do for all the right reasons, and... I just got involved early on and have been involved particularly in the fundraising side. The other thing that I do is, in a sense, and this is my language, I don't know it as Jim, but I'm kind of Jim's consigliere in a sense that there's a lot of initiatives that we have out there, and he'll pass it by myself, maybe a couple other people, and say, hey, would this work? Shouldn't this work? You know, what's up? And I have, uh, although there's that rock and roll exterior, I'm really into that kind of, uh, you know, business development stuff and, uh, really growing, particularly in the last year, year and a half, but uh, I don't know if I'm winding around, but I, I got involved principally because I just thought it was right. I think that there's a quality to entertainment overall where people who, people today may be innovators and tomorrow could be forgotten. Right, exactly. And there's, some, there's something a little bit inside comics culture that I find somewhat disgusting, and I'll name names here. I think, you know, Wizard, not that they owe anybody anything, but they're kind of myopic in that they're in part, one of the voices of the business, and they're just interested in what's hot this second. And what's hot this second remains hot for a little period of time, and then things move on. And then there's a quality, I think, where people are discarded in the business. I don't like that. So, you know, a guy who introduced a cool inking style or who was innovative for something, I believe that person should be celebrated for life for that contribution. But that's kind of the nature of entertainment. Things are hot when they're hot, and then they're not when they're not. And the only thing I take away from that is that um, people's contributions shouldn't be forgotten. And then sometimes when these people are forgotten, I mean, their life can change very radically, very quickly. And, you know, people who are once at the top of the food chain, so to speak, are now, you know, almost near homeless or destitute. So right, to know right. that this organization that raises a ton of money has actually been able to keep people, A, from killing themselves, B, keeping uh, roofs over their head, or just help them get back on their feet, and you know, to a, a lesser degree, but to a degree that's growing, that we're beginning to celebrate these guys, and we've done it in private ceremonies, and I think we're going to go public more and more, but you know, to recognize our elders, so to speak, and what they've done for us, you know, I think that's all part of the, part of the package, and I have like an endless enthusiasm for doing stuff for that. That's all, I mean, and <clears throat> you're absolutely right, because it's such a... It can be so disheartening when you see, like, you know, a Ghostwriter's got this huge movie or something, and, you know, big hot character or whatever, and then you see the guy who created him, and he's like, you know, just some guy who's in the artist alley, and he's, you know, it's like, it just doesn't seem to line up, you know? Which is. Yeah, dude, it's a little disgusting. I mean, I, you know, I was very lucky because I came up, I mean, guys like uh, Neil Adams fought for creator rights, and other guys create, fought for creator rights, and I was just, like, kind of a lucky slob being at the right place at the right time where. I began to release comics in that era where you could get print runs. I mean, you could be independent and have print runs at 250000 Right, right. So I, I, I know I'm a beneficiary of a lot of what people who had come before me had set up or stood for. But then there are people even before, like 1980, who, you know, these guys, 
these guys laid the foundation for the entire industry right. and really didn't get much benefit from it. So, Absolutely. you know, hence part of the give back is just kind of like, hey, I know I benefited. I know I'm, I'm living a dream here. So here, here, guys, let's hook this up. Absolutely. And every time, you know, like if you do like a signing for something or if you give some art, all, all I ever think about is like, I know that I've made some cash off these people before and I'm, I'm just paying my taxes to these awesome creators. Like, it's just, otherwise, I'm just not, you know, I'm getting away with something, I always feel like, you know. I was just going to say, you know, just, I don't know, some things that are right and some things that are wrong on that particular issue of giving back to the, you know, to older generation just seems to be the right thing to do. Absolutely. And you were actually the guy who came up with the Ultimate 100 idea. Uh, with the yeah, 100. that's really cool. <laughs> and that, that is, like, the coolest thing that I personally ever worked on, uh, just to Thank be you. able to, like, be in a book. And then you get the book, and you look through, and it's like, uh, you know, you do a piece, and you 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 get to be next to all these legendary creators and stuff. So uh, I think that was the coolest thing uh, that you guys have come up with. I think the fans were so excited. I mean, you could just see this sort of the the people just loved that idea. So uh, you know, good one. Come yeah, up with more shit like that. But that's a matter of just tapping into the inner geek and said. I mean, actually, what happened there was cards on the table. I think this is going back to 04, and I said to Jim, you know, let's be honest, I mean, Chaos Comics folded, and I was having some moral ambiguity saying, you know, can I be the guy out there asking for support when, you know, my company folded, and I know I left debt to people. What do I do? I don't know what to do. So I felt like I had no strength of power in that, and I felt like, you know, I was a jerk. I was the guy who just... You know, said one thing, did another, and I was saying to Jim, you know, I was like, maybe I should step down, maybe I'm just, maybe I'm just adding stink to this organization, and he said, he, he was actually pretty awesome, I don't know, I probably saw like I was kind of in a dark spot, and he said, he said, said, nope, and in fact, uh, you're not going anywhere, and I need you to come up with a gigantic fundraising idea, and honestly, the, the ultimate came out of that, so I went wow. 48 hours, and, you know, there's something I always wanted to do, but I think really work on, like, you know, you know, a big time, you know, mainstream comic, blah, 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 creation. And, you know, hence the ultimate came out of that. And, you know, that was nice. I mean, it was nice to Jim, too, because it kind of gave me a little purpose there during a dark time. That's awesome. Uh, see, that's now that's inspiring. That's, that's just good stuff. And all I got out of it, I mean, I got out of it, uh, I got to have Kevin Nolan ink me, which was my dream. So thank you, Brian Palato. <laughs> you're welcome. Hey, dude, I mean, think about it. It was so cool, man. I mean, you know, Mike Malvey went out and got the McFarlane. I mean, that was the first set he did, the first time he did that in 15 years. I just oh, called absolutely. up Neil Gaiman. Neil, do you want to do this? And I got to be the guy to call up Herb Trimpy and, you oh, know, yeah. and do his. So, you know, kind of just doing its own reward. I mean, we do all this, you know, on a volunteer basis. The only two employees for um, Hero Initiative are Jim and Janine. So the reward is, is the doing for sure. It's great, man. I, I totally uh, appreciate it, and as do all the uh, great Golden Age and Silver Age creators who get to uh, get to live better because of the work you guys do. So uh, on behalf of me and the Round Comics guys, and probably the entire comic book geek community, I say thank you. So, uh, thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you, man. Anything else you want to plug or talk about, or uh, any other uh, fascinating uh, little stories you got? I don't know. I'm all set, man. I'm going to go out and party. All right, brother. Hey, always a pleasure Bye, to man. talk to you, Brian. Vice versa, man. See you soon. All right, brother. Later. Later. Cheers. I'm not the world's most intelligent guy. Sometimes I just sit and wonder why. It takes a lot of money and a telephone. Rock me, baby. Rock me, baby. All night long. <laughs>
This is Wire to Wire Comic Book News, top headlines for the week of November 19th, 2007. On his blog, creator Terry Moore has announced his new series to follow Strangers in Paradise. Moore wrote, The new series issue one is completed. The title of the series is Echo. Echo is the story of Julie Martin, a photographer taking pictures in the desert when she finds herself in the wrong place at the wrong time. Echo number one will be in stores March 5th. It will be 24 pages and black and white. The first printing of issue one, and only the first printing, will feature a silver foil cover. Bruce Willis will star in The Surrogates, Disney's big-screen adaptation of the top-shelf sci-fi series by Robert Venditti and Brett Weldell. Variety reports that production is set to begin in February. Jonathan Mostow will direct from a script by Michael Ferris and John Brancato. The Surrogates is set in 2054 when humans interact through robots who are idealized versions of themselves. In that perfect world, police detectives Harvey Greer and Pete Ford must stop a techno-terrorist who is determined to return society to a time when people actually lived their own lives. Comics pioneers Francois Mollet and Art Spiegelman are launching Toon Books, a new line of kids' comics in book form in 2008. The target audience is younger than mo- almost any other comic material currently being published, Kids Foreign Up. Toon Books stories will be vetted by educators to make sure that emerging readers will be able to read the comics themselves. One state's school system has already been sold. Toon Books will be distributed to the book trade by Diamond Book Distributors. AI middleware developer Kynogon has announced today that Kynaps, its AI engine, has been chosen by Sony Online Entertainment for the development of a DC Comics-based MMO for PlayStation 3, licensed by Warner Brothers Interactive Entertainment. John Blakely, VP of Development of SOE's Austin, Texas studio, said, We were looking for an AI solution that would be capable of dealing with dynamic, large-scale worlds in a seamless manner. By using Kynaps, we have a powerful technology to manage extremely dynamic environments and very large maps. Starman, the acclaimed DC Universe series created by writer James Robinson and artist Tony Harris, will be collected for the first time in hardcover on high-quality paper in the Starman Omnibus, a series of six volumes beginning in May. This series will feature new covers by Harris and will measure six and three-quarter by ten and a quarter inches collecting the entire Starman series, plus the Starman Annuals, Secret Files, 80-page Giant, the Shade miniseries, and much more. Scheduled to reach stores in May, the Starman Omnibus Volume 1 hardcover is a four 448-page title collecting Starman number 0 and numbers 1 through 16 with a cover price of $49.99. Valiant Entertainment has announced plans to release a hardcover collection of the XO Men of War series. It will include a new story by Bob Layton and a new cover by Sean Chen. This will be the second such hardcover collection from the new Valiant. The first collected Harbinger and included a new story by Jim Shooter. Diamond Comic Distributors did not carry the Harbinger hardcover due to a trademark dispute. Valiant sold the title directly to retailers. The war against illegal scanning and trading of comic books seems to be heating up. For years, illegal scans of popular comics have been making their way online via Usenet newsgroups and popular BitTorrent peer-to-peer tracking sites with little or no response from any industry publishers. That appears to be changing. 
The popular comics tracking site Z Cult FM has received legal letters demanding the immediate cessation of all illegal activities on the site from both DC Comics and Marvel Comics, according to a report at Torrent Freak, a blog that tracks activities related to BitTorrent file sharing. According to the report, Z Cult immediately took their tracker offline to assess the situation and to double check the authenticity of the threats. Late in the day on Friday the 23rd, Z Cult admin Surge posted a response to the letters sent by DC and Marvel. In the letter, Surge states that the trackers have been put back online due to popular demand and because Z Cult is based outside of the U.S. and are not therefore subject to U.S. legislation that was present on the legal documents sent to us. In addition, it seems one publisher sees some benefit from illegal comics downloading. In a surprise move, SLG Publishing, who previously asked the Z Cult administrators to ban the distribution of SLG titles on their tracker, which the Z-Cult admins agreed to, has reversed its decision and has given permission to Z-Cult and its users to distribute their titles on their tracker. The report goes on to say that a prolific scanner of comics named Ouroboros, who posts his releases on Usenet newsgroups, has received a DMCA notice from his newsgroup service and will no longer be offering his legal scans on the newsgroup. This legal action comes at a time following the first forays both DC Comics and Marvel Comics have made into digital distribution. In late October, DC Comics launched Zuda Comics, a web comics imprint producing all new material with a community slash contest component. And just two weeks ago, Marvel Comics launched Marvel Digital Comics Unlimited, a new subscription-based service with over 2,500 titles from their back catalog offered online. Those were your top headlines. Thank you for listening. Now let's get you ready for the week ahead with new trade paperback releases. Here is Collected Comics Library's Chris Marshall. So due to the Thanksgiving Day holiday this past week, books shipping this week will ship on Thursday, November 29th. Just be aware that if you go to your comic shop on Wednesday, nothing new is there. So let's look at the trades coming out this week. Let's start off with DC, and we have the Brave and the Bold Volume 1, Lords of Luck hardcover. This is going to collect the new original run of Brave and the Bold for 25 bucks. the first six issues. We also have Showcase Presents Supergirl Volume 1. That is for $17. Hawkgirl Hawkman Returns Trade for 18 collecting Hawkgirl 57 through 60, and the story in JSA Classified 21 and 22. Midnighter Volume 1 Killing Machine Trade Paperback for 15 collecting Midnighter 1 through 6. And Testament Volume 3 for Mature Readers. That is for 13 bucks collecting Testament 11 through 16. Over at Marvel, we've got the Essential X-Men Volume 8 collecting Uncanny X-Men 229 through 243. Annual Number 12 and X-Factor 36 through 39. That is for 17 bucks, And that is the period that I started collecting X-Men for the very first time back in the early 200s. Kind of around Inferno time is when I really started to get into X-Men. 
We also have Spider-Man Fairy Tales The Trade for 11 bucks, And the Civil War script book for $18. This companion volume reprints the complete scripts to Civil War 1 through 7 plus sketches, deleted scenes, and more in case you haven't had enough of Civil War. Now a few books that are left off of the preliminary list from Diamond, but we kind of are expecting this week, and I'll name them anyway. Batman Rules of Engagement, the hardcover. This is for 25, collecting Batman Confidential 1 through 6, a series that I was not too thrilled with. We also have from Marvel, Marvel Masterix, The Amazing Spider-Man Volume 9, the variant 86. This is going to collect Spider-Man 78 through 87. Avengers Initiative Volume 1, basic training premiere hardcover, collecting the six-issue series there for 20 bucks, And the Jack Kirby's Galactic Bounty Hunters hardcover, for 25 an all-new series featuring characters and concepts created by Jack Kirby, who also does the cover. This collects the six-issue series there. So, not on the list, but we are kind of expecting them to come out either this week or next week. Let's move on to Dark Horse, and we have Berserk Volume 20 for $14, and Shaman Warrior Volume 5 for 13 Over at Image, Age of Bronze Volume 3, Betrayal the Hardcover. This is for 28 and we also have the trade paperback for 18 Hero by Night, Volume 1, the trade for 13 And we are expecting The Walking Dead, Book 3 hardcover, collecting The Walking Dead 25 through 36, but that may be a week away as well. You never know with Image. Over at Devil's Due, we've got G.I. Joe Data Desk Handbook Collection N through Z for $5.50. And Tomorrow's Publishing is doing back issue number 25 for $7. It's cover feature this time around focusing on the 1980s Iron Man. So no doubt gearing up for the movie there. In the big news this week, you may have heard that DC Comics is going to reprint the entire James Robinson Starman series from the late 1990s. I, for one, am looking really forward to this run. I, I've got a uh, somewhat of a collection of Starman in my long boxes, and I hope to get the entire collection here with the new Starman Omnibus. This is going to be six volumes long and going to collect just about everything that Jack Knight was involved with, including the miniseries of The Shade and the Girl Frenzy one-shot that was out there. The volumes are expected to be about 450 pages in length and have a cover price of $50. Starting in May, we can kind of expect two or three of these a year, and these will follow in the same traditions as Jack Kirby's Fourth World Omnibus, Volumes 1 through 4, The Death and Return of Superman Omnibus, and now speculation can begin on what the next Omnibus line is going to be, and a lot of people think it's going to be Alan Moore's Swamp Thing run, which wouldn't be too shabby either. Now, just as a side note, a lot of people have been wondering what's going on with the Archive series, and, well, the Archive series is kind of, it's not going away, but it's kind of being morphed into this Omnibus line, and as you can tell, if you are collected edition fans like I am, uh, the archive editions have been slowing down, and DC has been focusing more on the Showcase Presents, these Omnibus lines, and also the Absolute volumes, too. So the archive line is not going away as we know it. There will still be some archives trickling out here and there, but it looks like DC is going to focus more on these specialized lines, which uh, is all right with me. I don't mind that too much. I think these are really nice books, and... Hey, you can't go wrong with the uh, the showcase presents or you know the absolutes. Even though the absolutes can get pricey, and even there's going to be some people saying that these books are going to be kind of pricey too. These Jack Knight Sturman omnibuses, but 
you know, they are what they are. It's you know, they're gonna be nice, high quality books. It's a wonderful run if you've never read it, and I really recommend you guys do so. And in case you're wondering, I do have cover art on my homepage. If you guys want to come along and take a look at that, and I will also post it on the message board when Chris and the guys post this up uh, on Thursday. And as an added bonus, this week on my show, I will be going over a little bit more in depth on the Starman Omnibus and a little bit on the history of Starman. And not only what DC could collect besides these wonderful omnibuses, but also what they could collect with the Golden Age Starman for a second volume, and also what they could do for a nice little trade paperback kind of in between with all the different Starmen that have come between Ted Knight and Jack Knight as well. So look for that on my show this week. So, for Around Comics, I'm Chris Marshall, Collected Comics Library. Chris Marshall is the host of the Collected Comics Library podcast. You can find the podcast, release schedules, and checklist of everything collected at CollectedComicsLibrary.com. Let's get you ready for the single issues that will be coming out in comic shops this week. Please note that this is only a partial list and that shipping dates are subject to change. And also because of last week's Thanksgiving Day holiday, a lot of comic shops will be getting their books a day late on Thursday, including Dark Tower Comics, where Mark was kind enough to remind me not to come in on Wednesday. But whenever I come in on Thursday, there will be new offerings from Dark Horse Comics, including a new Fear Agent story arc with Hatchet Job, number one of four. This will uh, see Jerome Opena on art duties as he and Tony Moore continue to alternate story arcs on the Rick Remender pen series that is an Around Comics favorite. Also from Dark Horse, we see Speak of the Devil, number three of six. This is the miniseries from Gilbert Hernandez of Love and Rockets fame. Moving over to DC, we have Sean McKeever's Teen Titans, number 53. From Greg Rucka, The Crime Bible, Five Lessons of Blood, number 2 of 5. As we see the new question trying to thwart the crime religion that is plaguing the DC universe. We have the epilogue to the Sinestro Corps War in Green Lantern Corps number 18. Under DC's Vertigo imprint, we see a new artist on Jack of Fables with Russ Braun of Animal Man fame as he joins the rest of the crew with Jack of Fables number 17. Over in the Wildstorm universe, Authority Prime number 2 of 6 rolls on, and that is written by Christos Gage with art by Derek Robertson. You just heard from Tim Seeley, and this week you can pick up Hackslash, number six, from Devil's Due Publishing, and show Tim your support. Coming out from Image Comics, we have Casanova, number 11, and a series that just keeps selling out, Frank Frazetta's Death Dealer, number five of six. Mike Allred's Madman Atomic Comics, number five, hits shelves. As does Proof number 2, that is from Alex Grecian with art from Riley Rosmo. You may remember this being Tom's Top of the Stack a few weeks ago. If you're interested in cryptozoology or paranormal investigation, this book is definitely for you. 
Marvel Comics is releasing the Scotty Young covered Cable Deadpool number 47. This is why uh, you will hear me plead with Scotty to do a Doctor Strange book at some point in his career. It's a really fantastic cover, so check that out. We also have Daredevil number 102 as we see the return of the Enforcers in uh, Daredevil, which is done by Ed Brubaker and Michael Lark. Uh, Around Comics listener Ryan Stegman is still on penciling duties for Magician Apprentice number 11, which comes out under the Devil Brothers imprint. Uh, For all of the map freaks like Tom and Scotty out there, you may want to check out the Marvel Atlas number one of two as it uh, takes a look at some of the more interesting places that exist in the Marvel Universe. Uh, We also have X-Men First Class Volume 2 number six. That'll take care of some of the highlights of books coming out this week. Hope you have a great time at your local comic shop. This portion of Around Comics is brought to you by Ape Entertainment. And now available from Ape is the Fablewood Anthology Volume 1. It's a lavish 144-page original graphic novel containing 13 complete fantasy stories and featuring the art of invincible artist Ryan Otley, as well as alumni from Flight and Popgun Anthologies. Fablewood covers a variety of themes within the fantasy genre from slice of life to sword and sorcery. No fantasy fan should go without. For previews of some of the amazing art in the Fablewood Anthology and tons of other ape goodness, visit our friends at www.apecomics.com. Texture like sun Lays me down With my mind she runs Throughout the night No need to fight Never a frown With golden brown Every time Just like the last On her ship Tied to the mast Two distant lands Takes both my hands Never a frown with golden brown It's Tom, you query, I answer It's a Tuesday, uh, it's cold, rainy, right before Thanksgiving I'm packing my stuff up, getting ready to go On the second part of my great Thanksgiving journey it's be the portion where I head back to my parents' house And, uh eat a lot of food and sit around and get bored in Green Bay. Uh, so I wanted to get this out to everyone because uh, I like to uh, keep the people happy. So uh, let's get straight to the question. This week it comes from Douglas, who asks, Okay, here's something I'm confused about. I've heard you all make references to Marvel screwing up the distribution and Diamond taking over the world or whatever happened. I really have never paid attention to the business side of comics until recently, so I have a less than vague notion of what is going on. I have listened to about 200 hours of your show, I apologize, and I don't remember you guys going into depth about this, but I could be wrong. Thanks. Well, Douglas, we have talked about it a little bit. Um, the distribution question always comes up whenever we discuss stuff like getting new people into comics or uh, trades versus singles, but I'm going to give you a, a sort of a brief rundown of the history behind the whole Marvel and Diamond thing. Um, you know, 
I don't know how old you are, but back in the day, you used to be able to buy comic books at newsstands. And those newsstand distributors were the same people you got magazines and newspapers from. And at that time, if a newsstand got a bunch of comic books and didn't sell them, they could return the comic books back for their money. And newsstand sales started to, to drop. So it became less and less profitable for newsstands to carry the comic books, which you know sort of created a, a domino effect where there just weren't as many comics on newsstands anymore. Uh, in the 80s, to sort of combat this, uh, a direct market was formed, which was sort of a whole separate distribution chain that only sort of distributed the comic-style goods. And the way they changed it was the books were no longer returnable, meaning that if a comic shop ordered too many copies of something, they couldn't return it. But on the flip side, they get a bigger discount on buying those items. So they get a bigger part of the profit if the item sells well, but they also shoulder a tremendous amount of risk in getting those books. Uh, and at the time when the direct market started up, uh, collecting was starting to become big. So as stores popped up because of collecting, the direct market was there to service these uh, you know, businesses. The direct market, because of that uh, high profit level, if things were selling well, was able to survive in the stores. What happened was there's many different distributors. I mean, there is Diamond. Um, there was one called uh, Heroes World, uh, Capital City Distribution, and all of these. And as we went through the 80s and in the 90s, uh, what ended up happening was in the 90s, Marvel bought Heroes World and decided that they didn't want uh, to have to go through someone else to distribute their books anymore. They were going to distribute their own books through that company that they bought. And this sort of threw everything off because that's a tremendous amount of money being taken out of the other distributors. So what happened was there was a dash to sort of sign exclusive deals with distributors, and many of the companies signed them with Diamond, uh, which drove a lot of places like Capital City Comics out of business. They got absorbed by Diamond. So what ended up happening was Marvel, trying to distribute their own stuff, sort of throws everything off, of, you know, off balance. Marvel's attempt to self-distribute completely failed which means now Marvel also had to sign to Diamond to distribute their stuff, meaning that Diamond was the only distributor of comic books. Now, why this is important um, a lot in the business sense is that Diamond's pretty much got sort of a monopoly on distribution. And one of the big things about getting comic books into people's hands is that right now, because of the direct market, to get a comic book, you pretty much have to go into a comic book shop which for the average person isn't something that they're just going to go up and do, you know, on a whim. Uh, so that's just a sort of a brief rundown of, you know, the history of distribution. I know it's very dry, but interesting, I hope, and I hope that you learned a little bit from it and sort of understand the business side a little bit better. And uh, hope I never have to talk about business stuff again, but I wanted to get this one out of the way. And I also noticed... You said that you are enjoying my JLA blog, uh, which I thank you, sir. I put a tremendous amount of effort into that every evening. Uh, if you have any more questions about anything, uh, I think i got a Flash one coming up next week. After doing this business one, I'm going to indulge myself uh, and talk about the Flash, which I know everyone, you're all sort of going, oh, God, he's going to go on and on and on. I'm not going to go on and on and on. I'm going to record an hour of it and cut it down to the best 50 minutes, 5-0 minutes. You know, there's going to be 10 minutes of chaff 
I'm going to separate from the weed on that. Until then, have a fantastic week. Um, exercise. I'm sure you all ate very poorly. Comic book fans are not known for their health habits. Um, make sure to take your vitamins and say your prayers. And this is the Tom of Maniac signing out. Bye. Comics aren't just in comic shops and bookstores anymore. You can find thousands of web comics online. And Jeremy Mullins is here to save you hours of searching the internet by telling us where to find the best and brightest in the ever-changing world of web comics. Let's talk about genre. There are many genres of comics to be found online. But journal comics is arguably the first genre to arise exclusively from the web. There's just something exciting about knowing that the characters you're reading about are real, and the events are not fictitious, but they happened the day before. It's quite an absorbing experience, and that experience wouldn't be fully possible without the instantaneous delivery of the web. Kevin Burkhalter, whose work I'm recommending today, is a graduate student at an art college, and his journal comic records the outstanding moments of his day-to-day -day life. School projects, girls, meeting comics professionals, brainstorming with classmates, hitting the bars, and coping with the loss of a recently deceased mother. There's also a very healthy dose of zombies, so uh, you'll just have to read the comic to see what I'm talking about. Burkhalter is a skilled cartoonist, able to convey much within a limited space and with very few lines. There's a sense of goofy innocence and glee in his work that makes it far more charming than most webcomics that I read. Sure, there are webcomics out there that have slicker presentation, nicer sites, but most don't have the heart. I'd like to recommend that you check out K-A-R, the digit 2, N-I-S-T dot livejournal dot com. And that first part of the address, if, if said phonetically, is cartoonist. So it's K-A-R, the digit 2, N-I-S-T, cartoonist dot livejournal dot com. Also, last week, I recommended Dinosaur Comics, but I gave an incorrect URL. You can find Dinosaur Comics at qwantz.com. So, for Around Comics, I'm Jeremy W. Mullins. Jeremy Mullins is a professor of sequential art at the Savannah College of Art and Design. You can find more about the school and their programs of study at www.scad.edu. When he's not writing The Continuing Adventures of Catwoman, Will Pfeiffer is a DVD and movie reviewer for the Rockford Register Star. Here's Will to tell us about what's happening in DVDs. This week's big DVD release is one I've been waiting for, the original Futurama movie Bender's Big Score. After being unceremoniously bounced around the Sunday night schedule for most of its run, this very funny and very smart animated sci-fi series was canceled by Fox a few years ago. Well, the DVD sold like those proverbial hotcakes, and the reruns on Cartoon Network revealed that yes, there was an audience out there. 
Ergo, this new DVD, which is slated to be the first in the series. Bender's Big Score follows the crew of Planet Express as they get involved in an insanely complicated plot that includes alien nudists, time travel, internet scams, and at least one of the Harlem Globetrotters. If it's even half as good as the TV series was, it should be great. Also out this week is I Know Who Killed Me, one of Lindsay Lohan's many recent box office bombs, a reissue of the Charlton Heston classic, Soylent Green, spoiler alert, it's people, and the third season sets of three shows that were frighteningly popular when I was a kid. Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, and Mork and Mindy. Consumer tip. None of these shows has aged well in the last 30 years, and they weren't even that good to begin with. Finally, we've got Hot Rod, the Andy Samberg comedy, and Hot Fuzz, the cop spoof from Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg, the comic geniuses behind Shaun of the Dead. Hot Fuzz is being released in a new three-disc special edition that's been designed specifically to piss off those of us who bought the single edition a few months ago. This week's cult DVD pick is Ricky O, a.k.a. The Story of Ricky, a 1991 Japanese movie that takes martial arts violence farther than any movie I can think of. The plot, which is based on a manga, so you know it's out there, focuses on mild-mannered Ricky, who takes revenge on the thugs who killed his girlfriend and gets thrown into a rough-and-tumble prison for his troubles. A pretty basic plot, I'll admit, but you've never seen it executed quite like this. For one thing, the fight scenes go so far over the top that most of them involve Ricky's fits actually plunging through his opponents, and at least one combatant gets strangled with his own intestines. Then there's the prison staff. The assistant warden, for no reason at all, has a bookshelf full of porno tapes in his office, and his boss, the warden, actually hulks out at the end of the movie, giving Ricky an opponent worthy of his flesh-punching power. In other words, it's everything you ever wanted to see in a movie with a hundred extra gallons of blood poured over the top. Happy viewing! That's the DVD report, and I'm Will Piper for Around Comics. You can find Will's written reviews at the Rockford Register Star by visiting go.rrstar.com and going to the entertainment section. You can also visit Will's blog at willpiper.com and remember to read Catwoman every month. That'll take care of another Monday edition of Around Comics, the comic culture podcast. You can visit us online at www.aroundcomics.com. You can contact the show via email at info at aroundcomics.com. You can also visit us at MySpace and Comicspace. And if you are inclined to do so, you can leave us a review at the iTunes Music Store. Thank you for listening today and making Around Comics your source for the best comic book news, reviews, and opinions. We'll be back again on next Monday for another edition of Around Comics, the comic culture podcast. In the meantime, we'll be everywhere in and around comics. Views expressed in the interviews or by guests of the show are solely those of the individuals expressing them and may not reflect the opinions of Around Comics. Any reproduction, retransmission, or rebroadcast without the express written consent of Around Comics is strictly prohibited. All content presented in this program is the sole property of Around Comics, and this has been an Around Comics production, copyright 2007. Baby, it's gone.